or whether we come grateful, thankful, and convinced of your presence. Would your words come and speak to us now with the grace that says that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, that in Christ and through your work on the cross, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. May that kind of love that renames us as your children embrace us as you have your way with us this morning with these words. In Jesus' name, amen. And this story is so interesting. It's some, uh, as, as this person is freed, kind of unbound from a, a crippling illness. Such an interesting story. And then we have the synagogue leader being upset at the end. Um, and I'm glad the chuckles came out as that was read. You know, when you sit and read a passage over and over and over for the week, you, uh, myself, I, I lose that sense of the freshness of, of what sometimes just pops right out of the passage. So I was struck by your laughter as, as we read this story. I think this story is a little bit like, this is, I try to think about what it would feel like, and we don't catch a lot of the cultural things of this story, but I, I wonder if it would feel a little bit like if you were um, at the scene of a, a car accident that involved, you know, multiple injuries, three or four people. Um, and so let's just imagine that there's this emergency room doctor that's driving up in this little Honda Fit and right and sees this accident happen and sees, you know, bodies uh, on the ground coming out of cars and sees this wreckage and there's this emergency room doctor, she pulls her car, turns right on the street, and, there's, and, and says, oh, perfect, there's a, in front of this restaurant right here, to the right, there's, a, there's that white on the curb, and it says loading zone. And so she pulls in, stops the car, and gets out and goes to work. And anybody who's there, if you're kind of a, a witness of what's happening, you're just awestruck by this person who's perfectly trained for this situation, and goes around binding up wounds, you know, doing tourniquets, delegating instructions to others of where to put pressure and moving on to the next person. And then all of a sudden, then the ambulances come and it's like, almost like you're watching in awe of this person saving these lives. And then you watch as the, the doctor is finished and she turns and walks to go to her car and then you see this, this restaurant owner out by the car red-faced and fuming that someone has parked in the loading zone and begins to have this angry exchange with this doctor who's just saved all these lives by parking and using the loading zone parking place. That's what I sense this story is a little bit like and how you'd be so puzzled. But there also might be a way in which if you could sit down and talk to that restaurant owner there might be a whole backstory to him and all that he's had to deal with for 10, maybe 20 years of carrying this business on his back and dealing every day with the knuckleheads who park in the loading zone when the you know, tortilla truck comes to deliver the whatever. You, know, you just get the feeling like there's this whole other exhaustion of having day after day fighting for his own livelihood in his business. Now, a lot of the parallels in that won't square out with this story and won't bring a lot of things to light, but you catch that kind of vibe from this story. And if, if, if we do try to get more into what Luke is doing with this story, we might even want to 
go back to Luke chapter 4, which was um, Victoria knew what she was doing when our first session in Luke in the adult Sunday school time went to Luke 4, which is sort of an identity story of Jesus as he reads some scripture in, in synagogue again. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he's quoting Old Testament prophecy when he says this. He says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and sits down. And he says, This is fulfilled in me. There's this sense in which Jesus, and Luke wants you to know this as he lays out the story of Jesus, there's this sense that um, Jesus is on a relief mission. He's bringing relief. He's bringing you know, unshackling power. He's coming to relieve over and over and over all these people from their, the restrictions that are really holding them down and keeping them from thriving. All these ways in which the world's not working the way it's supposed to be in people's lives, the way it's supposed to work. And Jesus is going around and just touching and bringing back and, and un, unleashing the thriving and making things work the way they're supposed to work again. And surprisingly, as he does this, as he heals blind people, blind people as he releases demons from people's lives, as he um, frees up, he does all these things. Surprisingly, there's a lot of controversy. He's stirring up con- controversy by doing this incredible relief mission kind of work. He seems to be constantly walking on the edge of conflict. There's controversy. It's controversial, some of the stuff he does. Like he, um, even when he, and he, he affirms um, this woman who's sitting at his feet learning as a student of a rabbi. And rather than having her relegated to what might have been talked about, I don't know if it would have been talked this way, but to, to women's work, he affirms her place sitting before him in a culture where women weren't supposed to be students of a rabbi. But then there's all these other ceremonial kind of issues that he's constantly doing. He's raising controversy by touching all these different people and situations. He's touching dead bodies, which is a ceremonial uncleanness issue. He's touching people with leprosy and they become well. And, and when he touches the dead bodies, they, they come back to life. Um, and, and he's being touched by someone who has a long-term bleeding issue, a woman who is relegated to unclean status and now has brought Jesus into that uncleanliness. And, and, and Jesus just keeps doing these things. He even tells a story where this religiously impure Samaritan, of all people, a Samaritan, becomes the hero in his story while the religious people in this story he tells are the ones who don't step up to the challenge of being compassionate. That's the, you've heard this, the phrase, the good Samaritan. That's the good Samaritan parable he tells. And he also does this um, interesting stuff, and we'll deal with some of these issues next week at our adult Sunday school, talking about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. But what Jesus will do is he will actually go into the house of a tax collector when the laws that we can read back in the Mishnah now we can read back to some of the purity laws and we know that, that if a, if a um, tax collector who was considered a sinner, if he came into your house, your house became ceremonially unclean. If you go into a tax collector's house, you become ceremonially unclean. And Jesus just is walking right into all of these 
um, controversial situations. And even strangely, in chapter 8, there's another strange way in which Jesus is sort of lifting restrictions. He lifts restrictions on who family is. There's sort of this theme. You know, he says, like, anyone who follows me, or he says in verse 21 of chapter 8, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And I think that fits into this broader theme of Jesus kind of unshackling and unbinding and lifting restrictions that people were living with. And so for various reasons, as, this, you know, as Jesus is walking along, going through all of these things, and as Luke is telling us a story, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the um, Pharisees, they are at his heels. Eventually, they send spies to pretend to be, you know, um, fans of Jesus, and, but then to ask questions that try to get something that, that they can stick on him, you know, some, some legitimate offense that they can take him publicly to court on and get him, you know, out of here. And so we come upon this story um, and it's one of the Sabbath controversies. That's another thing Jesus is doing. There's several of them throughout the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is standing right in that controversial area of Sabbath. And so in this story, what Jesus is doing by healing on the Sabbath is a sticking point for the religiously minded people of his day. For Jesus, it's a teaching point. When the story begins, um, it says Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and then it goes on to tell this story. I even read one person reflecting on this this week who said, it doesn't really tell us what he was teaching that day, and I, I would beg to differ, because we, if you know these stories well and understand some of how the Bible works, this is actually, what, this is how he taught. So this was, he was teaching in the synagogue, and what he did was he called this woman forward. He was, okay. Here comes the lesson. Jesus was bringing, he wasn't just willy-nilly being compassionate and saying, oh, we got to help that woman, we'll heal, heal her. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, now I'm in a, a controversy here? No, he, he brings this on. He wants to highlight this. He wants to bring it to light. But as we look at this woman, this is a suffering woman. He's lifting up her restrictions of her movement. Her back is curved. She can't raise it up. He touches her, he heals her, she straightens her back. He even talks about it as Satan has bound her. And it just sounds really awful. And I think the first step of this passage is to enter into her plight, her situation, her engagement with Jesus. Um, we, we read another story that we talked about two weeks ago about a woman who had a bleeding issue for 12 years. These years are mentioned, and, and this time it's 18 years. 18 years of physical misery. I mean, I've, I've had an occasional thing, you know, occasional physical misery thing. Very short-lived, you know. Maybe it gets better in three months or five months if it's the longest issues I've had in my life physically. But as I've pastored City Life Church over the last 10 years, I've gotten to know people... And some, some of you who maybe have had things that have lasted really long, maybe they're still there in your life, and they're just there, and they're there, and they're there, and it doesn't go away. Imagine, think about, if you have trouble relating to that, think about where were you 18 years ago? <laughs> I thought about it this morning, I thought, whoa, 
where was I 18 years ago? I didn't have any kids. Now I have four. All this stuff has happened. I've moved across the country. Where was I? What was life? I can hardly even remember what a day was like 18 years ago. And then to think if, I, if something, some physical ailment started then and I still had it today and I just this whole time has been defined by that physical ailment. Some of you have known what that's like. A lot of you probably haven't. Like I haven't known what that's like. But the first step is to enter into this woman's condition and then to consider Jesus walking in so full of compassion, looking at her in the eyes and just simply healing her, bringing bringing healing and wellness to her. She can straighten her back. She can live. She can do all the things everybody else can do now. And so she's a recipient of Jesus' unshackling power. One of the hard things about stories like this is not every Christian today who has an ailment um, like this or like any other is going to get Jesus's, set free with Jesus' freedom of healing. It can be a hard thing to wrestle with if you come to the passage with your own physical issues and maybe you've even had people pray over you and ask God for healing. In, in the same way that not every sick person in Jesus' day was made well. And so we have to kind of broaden the scope just a little bit to consider what Luke is doing as he tells the story, what Jesus is doing in here. And I want to just point out a couple of things, just to widen that scope, a couple of verses, and actually in the the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 17, where all of what Jesus has done on that journey to the cross and the empty tomb, all of it is beginning to be reflected on by the early Christian community, which had examples of amazing healing, but also had examples of people who, who weren't healed from sicknesses and diseases. And in, in, in this, these are the kinds of realizations that are coming out and being taught about what Jesus' mission was all about. If I look at verse um, 17 of chapter 6 of Romans, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, think of like shackling and being bound, slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And then just in the next chapter, he says uh, in verse 6 of chapter 7, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, Luke will eventually tell us, as he tells this gospel story, he will eventually bring us to the point where Jesus is arrested. And Jesus is tied up. And Jesus is bound, and Jesus, in a way, is like enslaved and kept in a place and kept restricted, and in fact, nailed up against a cross, stuck there. And what, what Luke will include, as some of the other gospel writers do, is that right at that moment where he's about to breathe his last breath, is that this crazy thing that is usually lost on us, unless you know, we read up on it, is that the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And that is, a, that is a curtain that represented space and distance and confinement from God's presence, sort of like a safety 
barrier to keep, you know, unclean people from being, you know, tarnishing the holy presence of God. It's torn in, it's torn in two. There's a massive, deep barrier that's a, the biggest possible spiritual barrier between us and God that is just removed in this great act of Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus came, yes, he came filled with just very real, potent compassion for every human that he ran into. But also, these hundreds of healings that he accomplished also served as signs and symbols symbols of this gigantic accomplishment to provide release from all of sin's enslavement over all of humanity. God's mission is definitely to bring about, in the end, a new creation where there's no tears and no bent backs and no ailments and no cancer and no you know, premature death and all of these things. Jesus brings about no tears, no sickness. That is definitely the, the new creation that is going to come about upon Christ's return. But also at the center of creation's imprisonment is the spoiled relationship between God and his image bearers, humankind. And so we, that's just a pan, that's just, I know it's a lot of words and a lot of depth, but it's sort of a panning back and looking at the bigger picture of what's going on amidst these healings and this unbinding of what's wrong with our world. And really it comes just to us to say, hey, whether you come this morning and you feel like you need release for, from some physical health issue or whether you come with some sense of needing release or shackled by some sin issue, Jesus, either way, whatever you come with that's binding you and holding you down from thriving, Jesus is your redeemer. Jesus is the one to set you free. Jesus is the one to cling to because all of the unshackling, all of this kind of setting loose for us in this world to function the way it's supposed to all function, that is all found in this one, Jesus. And that's what Luke is telling us. So that's my attempt to help us enter into the woman in this story. But I think very much that we, this story is given to us also, and maybe even more so, to enter into the, the mindset and the, the seat of the synagogue leader. I think there's a lot of that going on in this story. And the synagogue leader has done what I've often done. He has allowed fearful, practical, very good practical concerns to have him missing what God is doing right in front of him, right before his eyes. God is at work. And he doesn't have openness to it. He doesn't see it. And so I think for myself and for all of us, this question just has to be asked if you want to enter into the seat of the synagogue leader. What in your life has, has begun to grow in importance over the years? What has begun to grow? What has begun to take up more and more space in your mind? There's a chance that if we go to that kind of place where we're... We're possibly close to ways in which we are similar to the synagogue ruler. What increasingly gets under your skin? 
about people around you, about how the world works. It might be great. It might be a great impulse of injustice or justice that you have. What fairness fixation, you know, has, has come into your life over the years? It's not all bad. I mean, you think about that analogy of the automobile accident and the restaurant owner. I mean, there's a daily frustration of this restaurant owner with the use of this parking spot that's meant for the business and the loading and unloading. Jesus comes into the story almost as if one, he's one of the Old Testament prophets. And one of the things that you read in the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah is that they have really harsh words to say for the people who have, who have willingly stood up in, amidst folks who are going to church and going to temple and going to do these practices and, and willingly stood up and told the people what to do and said, We're, let us tell you about the laws. Let us tell you about what God says. And Jesus comes into this story holding these keepers of the laws to a very high standard of accountability. You're, you know, you're going to venture to enforce God's ways and to come up with the, this kind of extra layer of traditions that will help the law be followed. It's kind of like, you better watch out if you're going to lead all these people because it seems very clear in this story that they have used their influence, their supposed you know, godly influence, to actually end up dampening compassion in their gatherings of worship. And so Jesus uses the word hypocrites. And notice he doesn't say singular, he says plural, hypocrites. Even though there's one synagogue ruler. And I actually think the synagogue leader in this story is, um, I think you have a lot of compassion for him. I think in some ways Jesus isn't just putting it on him. He's broadening it out to this whole kind of system that is at work of all of these, these minute laws that, have, that aren't bad in themselves, but now they have become blinders to miss the obvious and there's great hypocrisy in them in the sabbath keeping gray areas where things have been set up all supposedly for good but in the end they're developing people who have more concern for whether or not they untied the animal correctly versus whether they're showing compassion to someone who's suffering and jesus is here to point this out but i believe this story um, what luke is wanting all of us to do is to find ourselves at a crossroads is we put ourselves in the seat of this synagogue leader, that we find ourselves in a way at a crossroads. Because as the story ends, there's two options. There's people described with two very different emotional temperaments at the end of this story. The synagogue ruler or leader, it says that he is indignant. That's his description. He's angry and then there's this other group of people. The people who were delighted with all the wonderful things Jesus was doing. Indignant and angry, delighted with, in, with all the wonderful things Jesus is doing. It's as if you just picture it. It's like there's a crowd that's enjoying a party atmosphere. And then there's this group of miser people who are just miserable in their fixations. And that's sort of the crossroads that the story wants to have us at. There's another place that Luke will take us in just a couple other chapters with the story of the prodigal son that ends almost in exactly the same way. As the younger brother has flushed away uh, half the family's inheritance, comes back 
And the father welcomes him in. The older brother is the one who was the good son. He's done everything right. In fact, now he has, he has borne the burden of double work and half the assets have had to be sold off for the family. And this older brother is the one who pays the entire price for all of that. This selfish thing that this younger son has done. It's so obvious that it's an injustice. And then the son comes back and he's reinstated with the family robe and the father's signet ring and a expensive party is thrown on his behalf. The injustices are just piling up on this older brother. And then he comes up, and so you can kind of relate to this older brother. I mean, this is just one thing after another, and now we're welcoming this younger son back into being a son? Does that mean he's going to get another half the inheritance that I've been slaving for while he's gone? And, the, and, and he's described with the same word as the synagogue leader in this story, indignant. He's indignant. And at the end of the story, you have a party going on for the son who has returned, a festive party atmosphere, and outside you have an older son, the older brother, who's angry. And we don't know, is he going to go in or not? You're sort of, it's a cliffhanger. Um, I love one little story, um, and then I'll close in prayer. One little story from the Chronicles of Narnia that that kind of tells this as well. C.S. Lewis is a master of bringing these kinds of things out in stories. So there's, there's Narnia, which as the white witch was ruling, Narnia was always winter and never Christmas, right? Isn't that amazing? It's always winter but never Christmas. Um, and, uh, and, and as things are happening in this story, suddenly... Um, the white witch is coming on her sleigh and Edmund, you know, Edmund is kind of on the fence. We're not sure. He's kind of gone over. He thinks the witch might be pretty good because of that Turkish delight. And he's on the sleigh and they come upon these creatures and they've got it all spread out and they're festive and they're celebrating Christmas. You know, and the snow is starting to melt and they're just, they're just beside themselves with joy. We're, it's Christmas. Well, why? What are you doing? And the witch is horribly angry. And they, what, what are you doing? Why are you celebrating Christmas? Well, Santa came and brought presents. You know, and they're just in joy. And then, of course, the white witch is just angry and she turns them into stone and ends their Christmas celebration. And that, but it, I'm struck with how that story has Edmund just sitting there. And that's where this Luke chapter 13 story has us all as Edmund as well. Because Edmund now suddenly is sitting there and watching this and, oh, is that, you know, huh. Well, which, which side do I want to be on in all this? I mean, Christmas, a Christmas feast with presents, that seems pretty good. Why would you be against that? Jesus and Luke want to bring us to that kind of place. That kind of openness, that kind of, not defensiveness, but just openness and willingness to consider. Which side do we want to be on? Let's pray. Our God of grace, may you bring about in our lives those synagogue leader moments where whatever it is that we are, are needing you know, to kind of let your grace pour into, whatever we, wherever we're lacking a kind of a joy that comes from being close to you and knowing your ways, wherever those places are in our lives, we, we, you know, we even invite those moments where you expose them, and we, you expose our need for you. And you help transform us into more compassionate people. And if we come this morning feeling more like the, the woman, the crippled woman, 
we find that we're suffering for much longer than we ever expected with things we never asked for. May you also be close to us. And may, may you also, maybe you don't bring the answers to all our questions, but may your presence be as strong as it was for that woman when Jesus looked into her eyes and gave her compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We get a chance to respond in prayer with the prayers of the people.